This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. The holidays are upon us, and for most, it's a time of celebration, friends, and family. While the holidays can be stressful at times, I hope you're looking forward to gatherings with those you love, sharing a time to appreciate one another and reflect on how much those special people in your life mean to you. But the holidays sometimes bring out the worst in people, whether due to a problematic prior family history, jealousy, greed, or any other number of reasons, the holidays can turn disastrous or even deadly. I'll be sharing two episodes with you this month about murderous crimes that were committed over the Christmas holidays. Then for the third and final episode of the year, I will bring on a much-requested return guest to help me dive into a case investigation. I'm looking forward to it, and I think you will all enjoy it. But first... To kick off the series, Mistletoe and Murder, I'll tell you about a case where almost an entire family was wiped out on Christmas Eve, for no apparent reason. This is Chapter 1, The Carnation Christmas Murders. On December 26, 2007, Judith Anderson was expected to arrive at the United States Post Office where she worked as a mail carrier in the town of Carnation, Washington. Carnation was a rural town of just 2,500 residents located some 30 miles east of Seattle and, incidentally, about half that distance from Lake Sammamish State Park. Lake Sammamish was made infamous as one of serial killer Ted Bundy's hunting grounds during the summer of 1974. Judy's friend and co-worker, Linda Thiel, had last seen her friend on December 23rd when she'd wished her a Merry Christmas, gave her a hug, and told her she'd see her the day after Christmas, when they were both scheduled to return to work. But when Judy hadn't arrived by 7.45 a.m., Linda grew worried. She decided to make the short drive to Judy's home, located just outside of town. Judy's house was located on a large wooded property, where she lived for 30 years with her husband Wayne, an engineer for the Boeing Corporation. Linda became more alarmed when, after knocking and getting no answer, she found that the front door was unlocked. She knew that her friend always kept her door locked. She turned the knob and called out, but there was no answer. Pushing the door open further, she peered into the living room. There she saw the body of a man lying on the floor. Unsure of what she was seeing at first, she looked closer. Then she saw two more bodies, that of a woman and what appeared to be a very small child. She ran to call 911. It was just after 8 a.m. When officers arrived, they found the bodies of a male and a female, and not one, but two children. All had been shot, with the adults shot multiple times. They began searching the property, and when they looked inside a backyard shed, they discovered two more bodies, a male and a female. The victims were soon identified, as Judith and Wayne Anderson, ages 60 and 61, their son Scott Anderson, and Scott's wife Erica Mantle Anderson, both age 32, and Scott and Erica's two children, Olivia, age 5, and Nathan, age 3. 
police cordoned off the property and called in the report of a multiple homicide. Soon, additional police officers, homicide detectives, and crime scene technicians swarmed the property. As well as the homicide investigation that now lay before them, police also needed to search the almost five-acre property for evidence and other possible victims. It was learned that Wayne and Judy Anderson were the property owners. Their son Scott and his family lived about 30 miles to the south in the town of Black Diamond. All of the victims had not been heard from since December 24th. Erica's mother, Pamela Mantle, told investigators that her daughter, Scott, and their children had planned to spend Christmas Eve at the Andersons. Pam had spoken with Erica earlier on the 24th, and two days later received a visit from homicide investigators telling her that her daughter, son-in-law, and both of her grandchildren had been murdered most likely on Christmas Eve. The news was too horrible to even comprehend. The Andersons had two more adult children, Mary Victoria, who it was discovered, had to skip the Christmas Eve gathering at her parents due to illness, and was contacted and given the terrible news. But their other daughter, Michelle, age 29, was nowhere to be found. Investigators were informed that she and her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, lived on her parents' property in a mobile home at the end of a long, steep driveway, which could not be seen from the main house. They found the mobile home to be locked and empty. Police and investigators were still working the crime scene several hours later when they were told that Michelle Anderson and Joe McEnroe had returned to the property in their vehicle and were asking to be let in. The road leading up to the house had been cordoned off by the police. Two detectives approached the couple to inform them of the homicides. According to a police report, at the time Michelle Anderson arrived, there was a large police presence on the property. Yellow police tape was strewn across the driveways and yards. There were dozens of police vehicles, mobile command centers, helicopters flying over the property, and many, many uniformed and plainclothes personnel on the scene. There was also a large press contingent with their own trucks, vans, and helicopters. Even with all this activity, detectives found it very odd that neither Michelle nor her boyfriend asked what was going on, where her parents were, or why they weren't being allowed to return to their home. I didn't know what was wrong with them, one investigator said, but I knew something was off. He spoke with a second detective, and they decided to question Michelle and Joseph separately. At first, they told detectives a similar story. They had decided on December 24th to get married and left to drive to Las Vegas early that day. They said they'd told Michelle's parents the news early that morning before leaving. That was the last time they'd seen Wayne and Judy Anderson, they claimed. Michelle said that her parents were happy for her, but were disappointed that she and Joe wouldn't be there to have dinner with the family. Her brother Scott and his wife and kids were expected that evening for dinner. When asked by detectives for details about their marriage, where the wedding had been held, and for proof, such as a marriage license, Michelle then amended her story saying that they had gotten lost on the way and never made it to Las Vegas. Instead, they had just turned around and returned to Washington without getting married. As detectives continued to confront them for more details of the story, they both soon cracked. They admitted that they'd made up the story about getting married in case they were questioned by police. 
Now, both gave detailed confessions about the murders of Michelle's parents, brother, sister-in-law, niece, and nephew. The story that would emerge would be one of the most cold, brutal, and senseless crimes that had ever taken place in King County history. An additional warning. The following account includes the murder of children. This content may be especially disturbing to some. If so, you may want to skip ahead to the next music transition in this episode. Darkness fell early on December 24, 2007. Michelle Anderson and her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, armed themselves with a 9mm handgun and a 357 Magnum revolver they had purchased from a pawn shop that summer. They drove the 200 yards from their trailer to her parents' home. The couple arrived to find Wayne and Judy Anderson preparing for their Christmas Eve guests. Wayne was in the front room, and Judy was in the back of the house, wrapping a few last-minute gifts she planned on putting under the tree before everyone arrived. Joe made an excuse to go into the back room with Judy, while Michelle stayed in the front room with her father. In moments of entering the house, Michelle pulled out the 9mm, pointed it, and shot at her father, but missed. Upon hearing the gunshot, Judy ran from the back room towards Wayne, followed closely by McEnroe. Seeing Wayne on the floor still alive, McEnroe pulled out the 357 and shot Michelle's father in the head, killing him instantly. He then turned and shot Judy Anderson as she began to scream. She fell to the floor, still screaming. McEnroe said he apologized to her before shooting her in the head, killing her. They were aware that Michelle's brother Scott and his family were scheduled to arrive from Black Diamond, and they didn't want them to see the bodies, so they dragged them into the backyard shed. They spent the next hour cleaning up the blood with blankets and towels. They then burned the evidence of their crime in the outdoor fire pit. About an hour later, Scott Anderson arrived with his wife Erica, five-year-old Olivia, and three-year-old Nathan. They were frequent visitors to the Anderson home and felt comfortable enough to kick off their shoes. Scott took a spot on the couch while Erica was occupied on the other side of the room by the Christmas tree with the children. Scott reacted quickly when his sister pulled out her weapon and pointed it at him. He charged at her and tried to stop her from shooting, but it was too late. Michelle told detectives she shot at her brother two to four times, hitting him once in the neck. Her sister-in-law started screaming, and Michelle fired at her as well. Erica was trying to save her children, shuttling them across the room and over the couch to take cover. She had been shot twice, but was still able to dial 911. As the 911 operator came on the line, she could hear a woman scream, and then the line went dead. McEnroe had ripped the cordless phone out of Erica's hand. He saw that she had made a call and that it was connected, so he tore the phone apart. The batteries fell to the floor, disabling the phone. Erica was huddled with her children behind the couch. Olivia was beneath her, and Nathan clutched to her chest. McEnroe stood over her as she pleaded with him not to shoot her. You don't have to do this, he told detectives the terrified woman said. He said he apologized and told her, yes, we do, before shooting her in the head. He continued firing, killing five-year-old Olivia as well. Finally, McEnroe said that Nathan had picked up the phone batteries from the floor and was holding them in his hand. He told detectives that the toddler looked at him with a, quote, look of complete comprehension, 
as if he understood, unquote, before he also shot him in the head. What I prefer to believe is that the three-year-old didn't understand what was happening and was simply interested in the batteries, so he picked them up. Mercifully, he was too young to understand that he and his entire family were being murdered by two monsters, one he knew well during his short life as Aunt Michelle. Police had been dispatched to the Anderson home after the disconnected 911 call was made by Erica in a desperate attempt to save herself and her family. But before a unit could arrive, Michelle padlocked the gate at the end of the driveway. When the police arrived, they couldn't access the road to the house, so they turned around and left without checking on the residents. As a result, the bodies went undiscovered for two days. Michelle and Joe planned to escape to Canada. They took the guns and dropped them over a bridge into a river outside of town. They then came up with a plan to say that they had been away in Las Vegas at the time of the murders, but their story quickly fell apart. Of course, the question on everyone's mind was why. Why had Michelle and her boyfriend decided to kill her entire family on Christmas Eve? What could possibly compel someone to shoot three generations of their own family in cold blood? Michelle admitted that she had been talking to McEnroe about killing her family for several months. She told investigators that she was, quote, tired of everybody stepping on her, end quote. She had decided that if her family did not start showing her respect by December 24th, she would kill them all. Michelle Anderson was born in 1978, and most who knew her growing up said she was quiet and seemed nice enough, but was never a popular girl. She tended to hang out with the misfits, or unpopular kids, at Cedarcrest High School. A former classmate remembers Michelle complaining about her home life. She said her parents were mean to her and that her father would hit her. However, she loved her older brother Scott and would say that he was the only one in the family she trusted. Later, not long before the murders, she began to tell neighbors that she was the black sheep of the family. During her confession, she related to detectives that her parents had often told her that she, quote, should have never been born, end quote. She believed that she was the child that was given the least amount of affection and attention by her parents. But friends and family members dispute this claim. Michelle's former neighbor said that Judith Anderson would bring food and other necessities to her daughter every month. Family members say that they never saw or heard about any abuse of Michelle Anderson by her parents. The Andersons were more private, but extended family members often spent time visiting them in their home, and everyone seemed to be relaxed and at home in each other's presence. There was no indication of tension or conflict, in their opinion. Then in 2002, Michelle met Joseph McEnroe online. McEnroe was born in San Jose, California the oldest of three children, born to Sean Johnson of Minneapolis, Minnesota. He suffered from chronic illnesses as a child and was diagnosed with a serious blood disorder. He spent a lot of time online and would play Dungeons and Dragons for hours. He dropped out of high school and took a job at a fast food restaurant before the family moved to Arizona. He started meeting women online. Before meeting Michelle, 
he'd traveled to meet one woman he'd gotten to know online who lived in South Carolina, but the relationship hadn't worked out. Soon after meeting Michelle in an online dating site in 2002, he moved to Washington. He told his mother that he and Michelle were planning to be married and start a family within two years. The couple rented a mobile home in Falls City, Washington. McEnroe took a job at a Target store, while Michelle was employed as a night security guard for Nintendo. At the same time, Michelle and her brother Scott were trying to start an auto-painting business together. Scott had a full-time construction job, but painted cars on the side. He enjoyed this work, and he and his sister thought they could make a go as business owners. They took out a business license in 2002 under the name Pure Evil Customs. But people began to notice an oddness about Michelle Anderson and Joe McEnroe. The couple rarely came out of their house for very long, and when they did, seemed to shun any friendly advances by neighbors. They also began to fight with neighbors over very small perceived slights. If a car was parked in their spot, or a neighbor's cat was spied in their yard, Michelle especially would yell and scream. Before long, she would calm down and apologize, but neighbors never knew what would set them off next. Michelle became friendly with her next-door neighbor and told her several times that her family was wealthy. However, Michelle herself said she was struggling financially. She said that she and Joe were poor. She told a former classmate who tracked her down on Facebook that she'd been diagnosed with severe anxiety and was supposed to take medication and see a therapist, but couldn't afford it. Her high school friend paid a visit to Michelle and Joe in Fall River and described them as paranoid. The trailer they lived in had black material covering the windows, and they told her it was because their neighbors were spying on them. They believed the neighbors had tried to break in and were, quote, out to get them. She also thought McEnroe odd. He said he was planning to marry Michelle, but would change his last name because he had broken off contact with his family over a disagreement that they'd had. Joe's mother, Sean, said that she and Joe's siblings had been searching for him for almost five years before the murders. He had been angry with her and blamed her for ruining his credit after she was evicted from an apartment he'd helped her to lease. It was because of this eviction on his credit report that was making it difficult to rent an apartment with Michelle. It may have been for this reason that the couple ended up moving into the trailer on the Andersons' property earlier in the year before the murders. It seemed that Michelle had always believed that she was being slighted by her family. She complained throughout her life about her parents, but was close with her brother Scott. That seemed to change, or Michelle believed it did, when Scott married Erica. Now, not only did Michelle feel pushed aside by her brother after his marriage, but also believed that her parents preferred her sister-in-law over her as well. Michelle always felt like she was the least favorite of their children, and now even their daughter-in-law bumped Michelle further down the family totem pole. When Scott and Erica began having children, Michelle felt even more ignored. Wayne and Judy, of course, doted on their grandchildren, and once again, Michelle felt slighted. Never mind that her parents, who both still worked full-time demanding jobs, were still helping to support their almost 30-year-old daughter. She had bounced around from job to job, and when she was short of money, her mother would bring her groceries or whatever she could to help her out. 
She'd even gotten her fill-in work at the post office when extra help was needed. At the time of the murders, neither Michelle nor Joe was employed. And never mind that when Michelle and Joe found themselves unable to pay their rent, Judy and Wayne Anderson had allowed them to move into the mobile home on their property and didn't charge them rent for almost a year. Not only was Michelle not appreciative of this, she began to complain bitterly that her parents had recently told the couple that they would need to begin paying rent in the new year. Michelle also explained to detectives that she was angry with her parents because she claimed her brother Scott owed her money, which he had not paid her. She said that over the years, he had borrowed close to $40,000. Her parents refused to take her side in her beef with her brother, and this enraged her. All of these complaints she shared with her boyfriend, Joe, over the five years they were together. Neighbors who knew the couple said that Michelle was clearly the one in charge in the relationship, with Joe doing her bidding. Michelle and Joe's next-door neighbor in Fall River told a reporter for the Seattle Times that he often heard yelling coming from their trailer. Once, he listened closely to see what the yelling was about. It was always Michelle yelling the loudest, he said. And he could hear her yelling at McEnroe. You have no job, you have no money, and you have no life. Another neighbor said that the couple often reported being in fear for their lives. There was this paranoia about them, she said. They felt they could only trust one another, that they could count on no one but each other. Prosecutors had everything they needed to charge Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe with six counts of aggravated murder in the first degree, a charge that could carry the death penalty. But detectives had one more question for the couple. Michelle had felt slighted by her parents and said she was emotionally abused by them and finally snapped. And according to Michelle, her brother had disrespected her by refusing to pay her the money he owed her. Even if this was the case, they were baffled as to why they had also decided to kill his wife, Erica, and his two children. Michelle said it was a combination of not wanting them to have to live with the memories and not wanting there to be any witnesses. McEnroe's explanation was more to the point. I didn't want them to turn us in, he answered. King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg decided to seek the death penalty against both Joseph McEnroe and Michelle Anderson for the murder of her six family members. Given the magnitude of these alleged crimes, the slaying of three generations of a family, and particularly the slaying of two young children, I find that there are not sufficient reasons to keep the death penalty from being considered by the juries that will ultimately hear these matters, he announced in 2008. But while they both pleaded not guilty, as is routine in capital cases, Michelle Anderson told the press that she was guilty of the crime and wanted to receive the death penalty. In a jailhouse interview in 2008, she said, I need to be executed for everything I've done. I know what I've done, and I want to take responsibility for it. Her lawyers would have a difficult time defending Michelle, given her confession and statements to the press, but they began making a case for her mental incompetence in order to save her life. The background and mental health history of this defendant make her an inappropriate candidate for a death sentence, one of her lawyers, Steve Isla, told reporters. At first, Michelle would not agree to a court-appointed psychiatric assessment. 
But when she was finally forced to do so, the psychologist determined that she was mentally competent to stand trial. There are no mitigating factors, Anderson said as the case dragged on. I've been evaluated by three doctors, and I've been found competent. My lawyers are trying to force me into a life sentence because they're opposed to the death penalty. She also blamed herself for getting her boyfriend mixed up in murder. I don't want to say who did what, she said. We both shot people. But this is all my fault. I dragged him into it. In January 2014, six years after his arrest, Joseph McEnroe confessed to the murders in order to try and avoid a death sentence. In December of that year, his trial finally began. On March 25th, the jury found him guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he said that he took responsibility for his part in the murders, but also said that he had been manipulated by his girlfriend, Michelle. I did it because I had to, he told the judge. I was her attack dog. The jury was split, eight to four, in favor of death. He was then sentenced to life in prison, without the possibility of parole. While Michelle Anderson had long asserted that she wanted to plead guilty and receive the death penalty for her role in the murders, by 2014, she had changed her mind. The prosecutor decided not to seek the death penalty after all, since juries had rejected the sentence of death for two other capital murder cases the previous year, including Joseph McEnroe's. In March 2016, Anderson was finally convicted of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. The following month, she stood before the judge to receive her sentence. But first, the judge spoke to the victim's family members, acknowledging the terrible pain they had endured over the many years between the time their loved ones were murdered and the final outcome in court, with more than eight years of legal wrangling. You have all suffered tremendous losses, Judge Ramsdell said. Fortunately, this lengthy chapter of your nightmare is almost over. The victim's families were allowed to speak next. Pamela Mantell, Erica's mother, addressed Michelle directly. When you shot her, she called 911, not just to save herself, but to save her babies, because she knew that you'd kill them too. I don't think you're big and tough, Michelle, she said facing her daughter's and grandchildren's murderer. I think you're a bully and a coward. I am heartbroken. Every day, I miss those six people. Michelle's sister, Mary Victoria Anderson, testified at trial that she would have been killed too if she hadn't been ill that Christmas Eve. At the sentencing, she was very emotional when addressing her younger sister. It kills me. I loved you so much, she told Michelle, before adding that Michelle would have a lot of time to think about how much she'd affected so many people's lives as she spent the rest of her life in prison. For that was the sentence she would receive. The only possible punishment the judge could now hand down for her crime was life in prison without the possibility of parole. It had taken over eight years for justice to be done and Michelle Anderson to be thrown in prison and the key tossed away for the murders of six of her family members. The total cost estimated for the investigation and two trials exceeded $11 million. The investigation was estimated at about $1.7 million. The cost to defend Joseph McEnroe was $4.7 million, and Michelle Anderson's defense team cost the state approximately $5.2 million. And yet, we still don't have an answer as to the real reason Michelle Anderson decided that her entire family had to die on that Christmas Eve. 
the court found her mentally competent to stand trial. But was she, in truth, mentally ill? Her belief that she was being persecuted not just by her family, but by neighbors and strangers, certainly suggests she may have been suffering from delusions. As we've seen in other cases where couples conspire to kill together, a type of shared delusion is sometimes present, with both people spurring each other on to commit acts that alone they might never consider. Joseph had signed on willingly to both Michelle's persecution complex and her plans for murder. Or could it simply have been a case of greed? Michelle and Joseph planned to say that they'd been out of town when her family was gunned down. Did she think they'd get away with the crime and then inherit money or property her family owned? The detectives who took her confession said that she mentioned money and finances no less than 30 times during her interview, and they believed money was one of the main motivations for the murders. Or could it have been something as petty as jealousy that caused her to plan and carry out such a horrific crime? I tend to lean toward this explanation. She'd always been jealous of her siblings, believing they were favored by her parents. Her brother Scott had been the only one she'd cared for, probably because he gave her the attention she craved while they were growing up. But that changed when he got married. She then became jealous of her parents' relationship with their daughter-in-law. She grew even more jealous when the grandchildren came into the picture. Now the love and attention from her parents was not only divided between siblings and in-laws, but their children as well. Michelle told detectives that she was tired of everybody stepping on her and that she felt pushed out by her family. She also admitted that she'd planned to kill everybody in her family. What other reason could she have for killing innocent children besides jealousy? Maybe she never believed she'd get away with murder, and that wasn't the point. Michelle and Joseph returned to the scene of the crime with a very thin alibi, almost as if she knew she'd be caught, and she didn't really care. Perhaps, in her mind, she'd accomplished her goal of deadly revenge for what she perceived as a lifetime of slights. It brings to mind the story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amontillado. If you'll recall, the story begins with the narrator claiming ongoing insults by his perceived foe, Fortunato. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I have borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. He then sets about to lure his enemy, Fortunato, to a wine cellar, where he proceeds to trap him in a cemented vault and leave him to die. But we never find out what even one of the thousand injuries Fortunato had supposedly levied against him was. We learn in the end that he is most assuredly a madman, who fixated on poor Fortunato, imagining slights where there were none. Perhaps Poe understood that the dark thoughts of those who carry out the most heinous acts would forever remain a mystery. And maybe that's as it should be. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. For those of you celebrating Hanukkah this week, I wish you joy and peace, and especially family harmony during these holy days. And always, why not? Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. 
My assistant extraordinaire is Lorena Garcia. Original music for the show was created by Cesare Gray, and copy editing is provided by Crystal Dernan. I'm still looking for more original music for the show, so if you'd like to have your music heard by over 100,000 people per week, send me an email with a sample to esther at truecrimepodcast.com. I'm also looking to update our website, so if you have WordPress skills you'd like to lend the show, I'd love to hear from you as well. Thanks so much. You can find Once Upon a Crime on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, you'll find us at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.